Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have a returning star. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Starting the bloopers off. <laughs> oh, uh, David Batman Brown, I think, uh, was the uh, name we had for you. And interestingly enough, uh, we have Joshua back from a podcast last week who I think also identifies with Batman, right? Superman, actually. Superman. So, a lot of conflict. Ooh. Uh-oh. Wow, you guys, I, you know, I don't know my superheroes well enough to um, <laughs> to be able to comment on why that's bad. But in any case, uh, let's go ahead and get started. We've got a what I think is a very fascinating podcast, and let's do some introductions. Joshua, would you like to start? Yeah, I'm Joshua. I'm a third-year medical student with Rocky Vista University, interested in going in psychiatry, and just happy to be here. And I'm Dave. I'm a fourth-year medical student interested in going into psychiatry and, and? emphasizing why Batman's <laughs> better than Superman. <laughs> so interestingly enough, uh, I think Dave, I called you David and Dave during most of the rotation the last time you were here. Uh, I think when we wrote a letter of recommendation for you, it was clearly David, right? So so if I go back and forth in this podcast, I apologize, but it's really hard for me to pick one name for you. I didn't realize that, that was so disorienting for people. Um, like they really need an, a firm, are you, do you go by David or Dave? And I would just go like, you pick. And then that just puts them in this uncomfortable <laughs> conundrum that <laughs> I find baffling. But So you did it on purpose to me. Well, I, I think the issue is I definitely want to be polite to you. So, um, But I think uh, you just enjoy hanging out here, actually. So it's good to have you back. You were here with us, and you did a couple of podcasts before. In fact, your podcast on complex PTSD is the opus magnus, is that the appropriate phrase of podcast to this point, with a two-hour, nearly two-hour content, and it is among the most listened to podcasts. It's fascinating to me. It's exploded. You came up with an idea. We have a couple of podcasts cooking. We have a series of podcasts where misused uh, diagnoses lead to unique presentations, kind of things that maybe don't have as much play as uh, other use disorders, right, substance use disorders. We, we're going to tackle a few of those. We'll talk about the one today. And then we've got a podcast building on this paper that was published in what I believe is Psychology Today that said the serotonin hypothesis is bogus. Don't use antidepressants. Yeah. Yeah, we've got that coming, right? we got a podcast trying to look at that critically and see what message there is for us to take out of that. Yeah, it really kind of was one of those things that came to my attention um, because it's so popular on the internet and you get questions saying, how can that be possible? And Or I even had a coworker that said, so doesn't that just refute like most of psychiatry then? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think it brings up, I think it's going to be a great discussion, right? I think um, I'm looking forward to it. But I'm also really excited about this discussion. So transitioning hard in a way that wasn't very subtle, right? Uh, tell us about how you came to the podcast about loperamide use disorder. Yeah. Um, I actually came upon the subject because I, um, I'm going to be eventually doing an emergency toxicology rotation. And I think that toxicology is something particularly that's important for um, psychiatry as well, because we're seeing a lot of patients that are misusing certain substances, and to find 
um, sort of understand the gamut of presentations and to be able to understand if this is a common or less common thing and not always assume I have a clean urine talk screen, therefore patients not on any substances, you know, check that box. Um, so I felt like this was important to bring into the, um, the public awareness as, as something that's a possibility. Um, and then I, I don't know if I got to, to your original question, but uh, I listen to um, podcasts with toxicologists and, and that kind of thing. And it was a kind of a disturbing trend that they had noticed that started peaking in the late 2014-ish period and has apparently continued to climb, especially with COVID. And I, I think that a couple of the articles, we had a handful of articles, I was impressed by the way every article said, hey, this is an under-recognized problem. Here's a case series of 15 to 20 patients in our area. I think there was a paper out of New York. There was a paper that I think I found out of one of the Carolinas. I think there was a paper that reviewed MWR's uh, data, which seemed to not include everybody by any means. I think this is a, a, a common, I don't know if common is the right word. It's not an uncommon problem. And uh, the, the picture is pretty clear, I think, once you talk about it enough, right? Identifying it with somebody that walks in, it's not like we have these test questions where we say an agitated patient with uh, horizontal or uh, rotary nystagmus walks into your emergency room and we immediately go, oh, nystagmus, that is PCP, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, this is more complicated, right? So let's, let's talk about this. First of all, deaths. It's hitting the registry because of deaths. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Um, so from the period of 2010 to 2015, there was a 91% increase um, in reported loperamide exposures to the National Poison Data System, and approximately 38 cases per year with reported 15 deaths during that time frame. Um, eight of those cases involved single-agent loperamide use. Which is pretty amazing. Now, why why did people start dying from loperamide? Why did this start popping up in 2008? I think that's where we started seeing the data collection, yeah. even though your numbers are 10 to 15, I think. Yeah. Um, I know that um, in terms of prescriptions with opioid, opiates and opioids, um, the stewardship has increased a little bit, uh, kind of across the board. And it did seem like the data was pretty promising that showing that we have decreased opioid and opioid misuse kind of during that time frame um, until the pandemic hit. And then I believe there was a, a spike that we saw kind of related to that. But um, it could be that this increased control leads people to seek out other substances as they're not able to access um, opioids or um, opioids as mm -hmm. uh, a substance to misuse. Um, the other thing um, I saw was a lot of individuals that were on methadone, so they're actually seeking therapy for a use disorder, and then for whatever reason were unable to access methadone or buprenorphine, so use this as an alternative. If you do a search, let me see if I have the words I used, how can I get high using loperamide? <laughs> I did that search, right? And first of all, I was somewhat pleased that it was, I, I, on at least the first two pages, I couldn't find 
uh, a strategy for that. I, I think you have to dig a little deeper, maybe get on a message board. Perhaps you can find something on a Reddit thread. I, I don't know the answer to that, but it wasn't easy to find. Yeah. You can buy loperamide from Amazon. Yeah, or just over the counter um, without restriction. Pretty much as many boxes as you want. Um, the FDA, in response to a psychiatrist who actually appealed to have the scheduling changed, um, rejected scheduling changes, and their decision was to reduce the box size. So you can get a prescription for 16 milligrams. You can go pay a doctor $100 and say, I have diarrhea, or you can just go to the store and buy two boxes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So eight milligram boxes at the store, 16 milligram uh, prescription. And the, and the dosing, I, I think you've got written down here, is you start with four milligrams and then take two milligrams until the diarrhea stops. Yeah, yeah up to, of course, maximum daily dose is 16 milligrams. The other thing I noticed on the search is um, the New York Times called it the poor man's methadone in like the second sentence. I think the Washington Post had an article looking at this problem, also mentioned it as the poor man's methadone. You were mentioning that many people who can't get methadone start looking for this. Um, obviously, during withdrawal, diarrhea would be a pretty big problem. Perhaps somebody serendipitously came upon this. But uh, the, the question is, why does this loperamide, why is it a poor man's methadone? Um, you know, I, I wonder, I haven't done a cost comparison to see if buying this much loperamide, if it would actually be cheaper than getting methadone. Um, I would assume so, based off the fact that it's something that um, is being done. I think Josh was uh, Googling that right now, cost of loperamide yeah. pills. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I should have clicked on that Amazon link. So, the, so I think my idea was that the cost of being in a methadone program is largely associated with the structure of it, right? So you have the cost of the UAs, you have the cost of the physician, you have the cost of the nurses that are involved in that program. And that those costs add up pretty quickly. You bypass that with loperamide. Yeah. Now with, with uh, loperamide, what is the mechanism of action? Why is it that loperamide... Well, actually, I'm going to skip things around first. Mm -hmm. Where did loperamide come from? And why does it work as an opiate? Let's yeah. let's do that if that's okay. Um, so, first, if I dial back a little bit to what's the difference between an opiate and an opioid? Um, for all the fans of Game of Thrones, you might have heard that this referred to as milk of the poppy, where the <laughs> poppy seed plant derivative, and I believe the first was morphine, um, titled after the Greek god Morpheus for. Um, the god of sleep and, and dreaming, probably for the sedative-related effects. Um, and so from morphine, we get several different derivatives, which are called opiates. And then drugs that behave similar to those that bind to um, the receptors that opiates bind to would be opioids. And we could say loperamide is in the opioid class and specifically binds to an opioid receptor called the mu-opioid receptor which we know in the GI tract inhibits um, peristalsis and movement. So if you have diarrhea, the indication to use loperamide would be to reduce the diarrhea, effectively um, causing constipation in individuals that don't have diarrhea. Um, so that would be one of the first noted side effects would be that slow GI motility. And it acts like morphine in the GI tract and can even suppress what's called the gastrocolic reflex. Um, 
following that, if um, it's binding to the gut, it gets metabolized by CYP enzymes in the liver um, to a significant degree. And one of the metabolic byproducts is what's called um, MPTP, which is a molecule that if it gets metabolized further has been known to um, cause Parkinson-like symptoms in the substantial nigra, the MPP plus molecule. Mm -hmm. But that's just an aside. I think that's, there's actually, we may go back to this another time, but there was, a, there was an outbreak of MPP, I think toxicity with permanent Parkinsonism associated with uh, use of, or, or associated with that, not this molecule, but straight MPP, and it was kind of an interesting, like, toxicology sleuthing thing that was oh. fascinating. Yeah, maybe we'll go look at that another time. So, um, I just want to back up a little bit or just summarize what I think you've said. Uh -huh. First of all, uh, opiates versus opioids. This is an opioid, and it has the effects on the GI tract much like other opiates and opioids acting at the mu receptor. And the challenge we have then, the misuse issue, is that that mu receptor in the gut has a peristalsis effect, but the mu receptor in the brain has a? It has a euphoric-like effect, um, which is essentially prompting the misuse of the substance. So nobody, I believe, is chasing constipation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Nor respiratory uh, depression, which is the other effect of the mu2 receptor. Yeah. Uh, agonism. I believe, right? We're agonizing these and receptors. Specifically with opiates and opioid misuse, that would be one of the things you would normally consider as being uh, a worrisome side effect of chronic misuses. As the threshold increases and there's a need to consume more and more, the respiratory depression doesn't really go away, but the need to consume more to get the euphoria it does. Um, however, interestingly, in the mechanism way in which we'll see that loperamide is able to induce euphoria, we don't really worry about the respiratory depression so much because there's significant hurdles uh, initially that have to be overcome to even reach the euphoria. We'll talk about those in a minute. I think the other thing I wanted you to tell me about is why in the world did Paul Janssen develop this? We've talked about mm -hmm. Paul Janssen before. This is a guy who, according to one article I read distantly, I think we talked about this, and one of the antipsychotic development podcasts, he was worried that opiates weren't a stable source of revenue for a pharmaceutical company. Oh, <laughs> and so he started experimenting the, the way we read the story in a previous podcast on his neighbors who had schizophrenia with some substances he came up with. He developed uh, the, uh, I think he developed the butyrophen, no, the I think the butyrophenones or the phenothiazines. I think uh -huh. the butyrophenones, right? So Haldol, um, Prolixin, and uh, looks like uh, Droperidol, which is something we've done a podcast on as well. Uh, he developed these these medications, but you're saying he also developed loperamide. Yeah, and I don't know if it was directly or if it was J&J &J, um, after it was formed, because this would be in the 70s roughly when when it was formed. Yeah, so Janssen, I think, was bought out by Johnson & Johnson, and so mm -hmm. I, I think most of the Janssen uh, Pharma is J&J, &J, um, if I remember right. Yeah. So, so you don't have a story on the um, development? I would say the reason why it was developed, it's actually the chemical structure is similar to methadone with the tail of haloperidol. So those would essentially be structures that um, Paul, I don't know if he preferred Janssen or Janssen or... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I say chance. I, the pharma reps 
refer to it as Janssen here okay. in the States. Whether that's accurate or not, I won't. I, I won't opine. <laughs> we have to have our, our Belgian listeners chime in. Um, and we do have a few. <laughs> yeah. A shout out to our Belgian listeners. Yep. Well, cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the idea behind the development was um, let's get the what can sometimes be a negative side effect, but in the case of controlling diarrhea is a positive side effect of um, slowing peristalsis and then eliminate uh, you know the negative effects of euphoria and drug abuse. And so that was the idea is essentially we have an agent now that can kind of help with diarrhea. Um, Sold under the brand name Imodium. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't take it if you have blood in your stool. Yeah. Do take it if you have inflammatory bowel disease. Take it if you have short bowel syndrome. Um, take it if you have diarrhea from whatever, from most causes. I think when I was in medical school, there was some discussion about some pathogens that you might trap in the bowel causing problems. But Yeah. Probably want to avoid it if you have any type of infectious bowel or uh, infectious. Shigella? Is that the one that was? Shigella E. Hect. Um, uh, Shigatoxin. Or shigatoxin can actually be produced by E. coli or from Shigella. So I didn't know that. Um, Probably intra-invasive E. coli as well. Anything yeah, that causes parasitic blood. Parasitic, bloody diarrheas. Yeah. Um, so anything like that, you'd obviously want to avoid it. And But if you're having uh, volume losses to the extent that it's compromising your electrolyte balance, then I'm sure it's a consideration. So we have a medication that has been used for a number of years now. It, it use, it's used pretty well. We talked about the FDA, that some psychiatrists wanting to have a different classification. It's currently Schedule 5, right? So anybody can buy it over the counter. It's very difficult for this opiate to end up, opioid, to end up in the brain. And uh, yet we have a number of deaths associated with this molecule and it seems to be related to people trying to figure out how to obtain euphoria or potentially avoid withdrawal uh, effects and uh, I I think the pharmacology behind how people have kind of worked this out is quite fascinating. Um, I wrote a, I have a little picture here and I'm sure it makes for compelling uh, audio. (laughs) <laughs> like so, nodding like not at all right <laughs> <laughs> like nodding does that is correct and hand gestures um, so let's talk a little bit about the pharmacology I'm going to take us from point A to point B to point C to point D um, ingestion this is an oral medication it's now in the lumen of the bowel mm-hmm. and somewhere in the lumen of the bowel and I don't know if this is uh uh, like duodenum, jejunum, uh, colon, right? I don't know where we're doing this, if it's in the stomach itself. There's absorption of this molecule. Not a lot of absorption, but some. Yeah. And the reason there's not a lot of absorption in theory, and, and I think we had a tough time actually finding numbers for this, uh, P-glycoprotein is an efflux transporter in the, in the epithelium of the bowel, pushing this uh, uh, xenobiotic 
back into the lumen, right? The idea is excrete this in the feces. And at least some portion of this molecule is excreted unchanged in the feces, right? I think we had a tough time finding the actual numbers. Somewhere like 40, 50%. I saw 40, 50%, but I also saw the, the challenge for that was it, it, it came after describing what had gone through the liver. So I wasn't sure if that was like went into the bloodstream, got captured by the liver and excreted back into the feces unchanged, or if that was never uh, made into the bloodstream. All right, so so we still have some portion that gets into the bloodstream yeah. of um, a normal eight milligram to 16 milligram per day dose. In addition to that, uh, the amount that bound to the opioid receptors in the gut where we would like it to actually work. Correct, um, so, so we take that apart, we take apart the part that maybe stays in the lumen, never gets out of the lumen of the bowel. Once this molecule makes it into the bloodstream, what happens next? So it is primarily metabolized in the liver by a CYP enzyme, uh, specifically CYP3A4. And I think 2C8, but I've, yeah. I've never heard of 2C8 before. I don't know if that's... I would imagine that's a secondary uh, mechanism. I think so, and we'll talk about why we think that in a few minutes, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and some of these, um, we, we did a, a discussion on, on the cytochrome P450 uh, enzymes. The discovery is incredibly interesting to me, fascinating story, and how they determine the different kinds of uh, CYP450 enzymes, right? Um, set that aside now for a minute. It's extensive. We'll just say it's extensive normally in the liver. There's still this molecule floating around in the bloodstream. Yeah, and a lot of it, by the time it gets to the CYP enzyme, has been reduced and metabolized into that byproduct we had mentioned, the MPTP. Um, and so therefore it's inactive, inactive in the CNS and um, it gets excreted. Um, yeah, so, so, but even, let, let's say that uh, after that first pass metabolism, not everything is metabolized, right? It's uh -huh. extensive, but not everything is. Yeah. So we have some molecules that are going back into the bloodstream, and they, some of those molecules are in epithelial cells in the brain, or near the brain, on the not blood-brain, let's see, not <laughs> on, the, uh, on, the, on the blood side of the blood-brain barrier, right? Yeah. And how is it that... 16 milligrams of loperamide seems safe. Mm -hmm. Part of that is extensive metabolism in the liver. But the other part of that is that those PGP efflux transporters are actively trying to keep any molecules of uh, loperamide that diffuse into those uh, epithelial cells. They're kicking it back into the lumen of the bloodstream, right? Yeah. Rather than allowing it to cross past the blood-brain barrier. And I'd say most people, if they're aware of the PGP transporter or P glycoprotein, they were probably first learned about the blood-brain barrier. And if you know that it exists in the gut lumen and the kidney, then you're kind of a nerd. So, ouch. Um, <laughs> so, so I knew about kidney and I knew about brain, but I, I learned about gut today. Yeah. Um, so, but it's primarily effluxing things from preventing it from getting into the CNS essentially. And that's another significant hurdle to overcome is to overcome and saturate all those transporters before it's finally able to make its way into the CNS where they can then bind to mu opioid receptors and account for euphoric-like effects. 
Now this is, when it does cross the blood-brain barrier, this is a tightly bound molecule that has a, a it's a highly potent molecule, it appears. We looked for binding affinities. We had a tough time finding it. I think you found something, Joshua. What was that? Do you remember? Yeah, I have. And, and actually, while you're here, do you remember the price of? <laughs> <laughs> oh, seven uh, dollars. Is that what you've got written there? Yeah. So I was able to find on Amazon. You can spend seven dollars, rounded up, for a 24 count of two milligram tablets. Um, just a quick search. I wasn't able to find a quick Google search that showed the street cost of um, methadone in particular, but other opiate uh, medications that have been abused in the past for reference on how cheap you can get lapiramide. Um, a Vicodin pill is going to run you about $5 a pill. That's, just, that's if you can get a physician to prescribe it and that doesn't count the cost of the physician. No, no, this is a, this is a street. So oh, this, that's is, a street value. this is a street value. Five um, pill. Okay. About 40 bucks for fentanyl patch. So it is very cheap to be able to get your hands on a lot of lipid. Interesting. At one point, Oxycontin, which would be, a, I think, a close competitor in terms of binding affinities and potency, you paid about uh, $2 a milligram. And mm -hmm. a lot of people are using three or four of those hundred and... 80 milligram pills a day, so yeah. that starts to add up pretty quickly. Um, so back to misuse. Now we we have had. Um, let's see, what, Josh. What was the question you just looked up? Oh, it was just the um, binding affinity or the potency. And we and we, and we said that it seems to be similar to oxycodone. I think 34, yeah, 34. Uh, nanomolars. Yeah. Okay, that's that's a fairly tight binding affinity. Um, I think some of our most potent antipsychotics get down below one, but that's fairly rare. So usually one to ten is uh, where our potent antipsychotics sit, if I recall correctly. Now, uh, I, I want to now shift gears. We've talked about all of these barriers as to why loperamide doesn't uh, generally at the 8 to 16 milligram dose that's allowed per day, their prescription or non-prescription, to cause euphoria to be an issue. And yet, uh, people who are desperate have started to look at these barriers and find ways around that. So, um, Dave, let's <laughs> say that you did a search, how uh -huh. can I get high using loperamide, or found a message board. What are the kinds of things that are being talked about? How is it that uh, people are then getting loperamide into the CNS? Yeah. And and not to encourage misuse, um, we should probably yeah we're we're gonna to we're say. gonna talk about why this is very dangerous in yeah. a few minutes. But people who weren't aware of the dangers, how did they make this happen? Yeah, um, so there's uh, over the counter substances that can be taken um, administered with it that will inhibit that CYP three A four enzyme. Um, which essentially is going to increase the amount of loperamide that's in circulation. Um, so one of the common CYP inhibitors that is used over the counter is called cimetidine uh, or tagamet. It, um, I don't feel like it's used that often for heartburn or anything like that. Not anymore. Uh, it's just got Proton really... Proton pump inhibitors change the world, right? Yeah. And <laughs> like you get the nasty CYP inhibition and, and not a lot of upside to that. Um, not to slam Tagamet too hard, but there has since been newer drugs that have been developed that 
And if you're, uh, is it mellow yellow that has grapefruit juice in it? Yeah, and then of course, mm. everybody, if you're on any type of CYP metabolized drug, you've got to wonder, you know, especially warfarin, about eating grapefruit or consuming grapefruit seed extract and then worrying about CYP inhibition, which I believe it acts upon multiple CYP enzymes, not just the 3A4 enzyme. Okay. Um, and then the other... I mean, I'm going to stop there sure. for one second. I think... The, the first step is increase the amount you take, Yeah. right? Yeah. So, so you get more in the lumen, then you block the PGPE flux. Um, uh, we're gonna talk about that next, right? Uh -huh. So that you can get more across the bowel lumen into the bloodstream. Then you block the metabolism of that extensive first pass by um, getting in the way of 3A4 metabolism. And then to make sure that those endothelial cells in the brain and the endothelial cells in the gut aren't protecting you, you can also add a PGP inhibitor. Talk to me about those. Yeah, so uh, something that is going to inhibit PGP is effectively doing the same job that um, increasing the dose of loperamide would do in, in saturating the transporter and you know occupying that, essentially preventing it from doing its job. and keeping molecules out of the CNS. So substances that block PGP or inhibit it, um, I know like a lot of antifungal medications, some antibiotics, so you kind of have to worry about those things if they're being co-ingested with high dose loperamide. I don't think you have a, a lot of concern about those substances if you're taking it within the therapeutic range. But when you get to those doses that typically are used in um, these toxic scenarios where the dose is 100 milligrams or upwards, then you really got to worry about anything that works with PGP or the CYP enzymes. Yeah. I was surprised at the, you mentioned uh, the azoles, I think, a couple of antibiotics. I was surprised at how many antidepressants were on that list. I think yeah. deloxetine was on that list, sertraline was on that list, uh, paroxetine, I think, was on that list. I was surprised. At a, at a number of things that were on that list, right? It, it kind of made me start thinking about how do I how do I leverage maybe some of these molecules to improve the effect of antipsychotic medications in the brain, right? So I start wondering, hmm, can I block PGP with maybe sertraline, which has some data about negative symptoms and schizophrenia, mm. and increase the amount of time that the molecule stays on the other side of the blood-brain barrier that is to help with auditory hallucinations and positive symptoms of psychosis. Yeah. So um, interesting interesting thoughts crossing my mind. I really enjoyed the, the pharmacology of this molecule. I think so, that gets into like meta-augmentation when you, when you get past not just the metabolites, but then also sort of the how do you keep the metabolites where you want them in the right space? So to yeah, speak. like compartmental management. I think there's a word for that in anesthesia. <laughs> I have to look that up. All right, so we've, we now have people then who have leveraged through uh, increased dose, blocking first-pass metabolism, and then blocking the efflux transporter uh, P-glycoprotein to now get this opiate in their brain. And they are showing up at the emergency room. My first thought was people were dying from constipation. You said, mm, no. You would think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think actually a more bright person, a, a, a more thoughtful psychiatrist might actually say, oh, they're dying from respiratory depression. 
And you would also be wrong. And I would also be wrong. <laughs> so teach me or teach everybody like okay. you did me earlier today. Um, so I am actually still baffled that um, constipation, paralytic ileus are not wide causes of death, especially considering misuse of loperamide. The first thing you get is constipation. Yeah. So um, apparently, they, once you've saturated all those opioid receptors, uh, maybe the affinity isn't that great and it's able to fall off nicely and you could valve just continues to work. Or maybe the um, other stuff sneaks up on you that quickly. Yeah. Or so it, yeah. <laughs> I have no explanation for that, but in terms of why we don't worry so much about respiratory depression, it's that the um, essentially that is an after effect once it's able to bind to receptors inside of the CNS. And that's the ultimate hurdle is actually making its way to the CNS. It's almost like it's uh, like a hurdle sprinter or something and it jumps over several hurdles until it finally gets the goal. And very little has made it to actually where it needs to get to and to induce euphoria. So um, a lot of it's lost along the way. And it's mm -hmm. lost in the heart. Talk to um, me about the dangerous cardiotoxicity because yeah. I think that's, as I read the articles, as I look through these, um, I, I read a few, I skimmed a few. It looks like a lot of the worry is respiratory, but a lot of the death is cardiac. Yeah. Does that sound right? Th uh -huh. th there was a lot of management of, of respiratory depression, uh, naloxone use, but that wasn't what was killing people. Yeah. So, um, so what was killing people? <laughs> so back to the molecular structure, um, we know that methadone is a QT prolonging medicine and haloperidol, while not the most QT prolonging of antipsychotic medications, is also QT prolonging. And so it's been hypothesized that that contributes to the degree to which loperamide is QT prolonging. And so um, one of the concerns is it effectively is shutting down what's called the HERG potassium channel, um, which is a, a potassium rectifying channel and inhibition of that is gonna to lead to your early after depolarizations, um, which is a concern we worry about ending up in torsades de poids, or... <laughs> um, is that the way the Belgians say it? I don't know. They do speak French <laughs> now we gotta bring in, in French Belgium too, right? Speakers on. <laughs> Southern French, or Southern Belgium, French? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and then uh, also sodium channels as well, which can lead to a wide QRS complex. Um, but it seems like the, the causes of death in the ER tend to be um, MI, probably related to ventricular arrhythmia. And then also people that maybe had a genetic predisposition like Brugada syndrome or uh, some type of potassium channel would make you more susceptible to developing those early after depolarizations and ending up in a very malignant rhythm. So um, the, the cases that we see in the case reports, which is the primary literature for this problem right now, is that people are presenting the ER either um, presyncopal or they are dying in the ER because they just have so much loperamide in the system. And it's hard to determine that um, because we can't do a standard drug screen that says, oh, they have loperamide toxicity. We really have to defer to the history, and if the patient can't provide that, that's another uh, hurdle. It becomes symptomatic treatment until you figure out what's going on. Yeah, and, um, and the other challenge is when a patient presents with that degree of toxicity, 
you really can't detox the patient. You know, you can't give activated charcoal and bind to it. It's it's already at the point of no return. So you do an ACLS related algorithm, or you're essentially having a probably cardiac consult manage the arrhythmia until they're able to be stable and monitored, and we can get the loperamide out of the system. Loperamide has an 11-hour half-life. But all bets are off once you have inhibited CY, uh, CYP3A4, um, once you have inhibited PGP, depending on what the half-lives of those medications are, you've now got either long-standing problems with respiratory suppression, depression, not suppression, sorry, and these cardiac sy uh, syndromes or cardiac symptoms. Yeah. Some of the case reports said like five days. Yeah, and, and some of that also, if you're just consuming loperamide and you're not using some type of augmenting agent, um, the pharmacokinetics are such that it's going to take longer than the predicted half-life to um, actually clear the substance. And that's without any of the other things going on. Yeah, so based off the half-life, we expect you know 55 hours to get essentially total clearing. Um, but that may or may not be the case if someone's consuming upwards of 100 milligrams in one setting. Wow. What have I not asked you about? Um, I think in terms of the general side effects that you would kind of expect with something like this, um, you know, we, we had touched on the constipation, but of course you can get dizziness, nausea, abdominal cramps, um, rare and more adverse ones, toxic megacolon, ileus, angioedema, anaphylaxis, TEN or SJS, um, erythema multiforme. <laughs> Hold on, Stephen Johnson's syndrome. Yeah. Um, Which, what doesn't cause that, I feel like? Mm. Well, I just <laughs> want to make sure, and, and uh, TN, um, it's, I have a headache today, so I can't come Sorry. up with names. What is TN? Uh, toxic epidermal necrolysis. Oh, T. No wonder I could do it. I didn't hear the E in there. Hmm. No. So, so T-E-N, toxic epidermal necrolysis or rashes. Sometimes I feel like they should just be called SGS slash T-E-N until otherwise denoted. But. Didn't we have a podcast talking about the difference between these? Uh, not us, but I'm sure you and another student. I think we did. I think it's a percentage of the skin that's covered by the rash yeah. determines that. And I can't remember what that percentage is. But and, if and you're taking worse boards, you should know. <laughs> yes, if you're taking boards, you should know that. And I probably should, too. What I do know is if somebody has a rash, it's probably Lamotrigine, and I need to stop the medication now and watch closely. Yeah. Chances for my are. psychiatry shelf exams. Or carbamazepine if you're using that. Yeah. Um, and then you need to test the HLA. Never mind. We'll, we'll keep yeah. moving forward. <laughs> huh. um, and then other things would be urinary retention and heat stroke. Um, and my guess is probably has to deal with maybe anti-muscarinic properties related to that. You kind of wonder about that tail on the Haldol end and what that might be doing in some of those uh, areas. It could bind to some of those receptors. Yeah. Um, and then most frequent symptoms of low paramide overdose are drowsiness, vomiting, abdominal pain, or burning, but most common cause of death is abnormal heart rhythms. Joshua, what have you, I, I think, <laughs> I know you came prepared to talk more, and I think I just kept asking Dave to, to go further. What did we not talk about that you had read about that we might have, uh, that you might want to share from a different perspective and so forth? It was, I mean, it's been great listening to David. I, I think uh, 
sometimes I don't really understand how much more knowledge you can have from one year medical school to the next. So being able to just have wide eyes as a full attending and a fourth year able to talk about things that seem to be going over my head. It was good to see where I might be in a year. I, you know what? You stuck, might be Batman one day. You yeah. might be Batman one day. Oh, wow. <laughs> Isn't shooting Green Lantern? low. <laughs> shooting low. Isn't Green Lantern tougher than both those guys, though? Uh, uh, it depends on which Green Lantern it is. Oh, my goodness. Where are we now? Uh, All right, so anything else you would add? I just think, you know, one of the things that stood out to me is that almost unintended consequence of uh, fighting the war on opiate, the opiate epidemic that's ravaging America, and, and just understanding that there's going to be kind of collateral damage that a lot of these patients that we're seeing every single day our entire stories our entire people all wrapped up and uh you know we can't just say oh well opiate use or opiate use is down we're winning and there's nothing more to do but being aware of these other avenues that these patients are falling into we we have to make sure that they're not slipping through our fingers right we have to be aware of this so that when they do come through uh, our clinics or um, as these rates hopefully don't rise but as these rates do rise we can start to factor that into how we're fighting substance use disorders how we're helping patients with substance use disorders so the social aspect more than the nitty-gritty pharmacology is what uh, stood out to me in this uh, in, in the reading that you had us have. And my take home will be exactly the opposite. Well, that's accurate and important. <laughs> I love the psychopharmacology on yeah. this, right? It helped me put together a, a couple of pieces of things that I hadn't figured out how to learn before. So I've been tracking PGP in a number of areas um, in the body, how it affects us. I've started to try and add that to my KI chart, right? I have a binding affinities chart for my antipsychotic medications that I use, mine right, the antipsychotic medications that I use, mm -hmm. I should say. And uh, I, I think that psychopharmacology, uh, understanding binding affinities is a big deal, right? I think it matters. And it seems that understanding binding affinities and the way that um, metabolism is leveraged helps me understand the hurdles aspect of this that you talked about, David. So, so at the end of the day, I, I really enjoyed the psychopharmacology of this and how people have leveraged their understanding of that um, in a way that harmed themselves. Again, do not do this because it will hurt you, right? And there's this, this podcast does not provide medical advice, but if anybody's listening and tries to decide to do that, I, I, please don't. This, this is a podcast designed to help teach third-year medical students uh, uh, how to prepare for the shelf exam, right? So, so just to kind of that disclaimer very clearly <laughs> again, yeah. don't do what we have talked about has been done. It killed people. So, so very much enjoyed learning the psychopharmacology. Dave, I'll give you the last word on this podcast. I'd say I stand somewhere in the middle between you two. So I'd say <laughs> total. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> the social importance as as well as uh, the intellectual fascination with just how it arrives you know, where it gets to, and um, the fact that people were able to sort of engineer that um, in the pursuit of euphoria. Um, it's a little ingenuity involved there. Um, Deadly ingenuity. Yeah, unfortunately. 
We might have to label that the podcast Deadly Ingenuity. It's <laughs> a good name. Yeah, it might be. Might All be right. a good band name too. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> I think it'd be a good superhero name. Yeah. I'm my superhero of choice is Deadly Ingenuity. <laughs> <laughs> Kill people with your mind. <laughs> well, I think Batman's the guy that's ingenious, right? Yeah. Because he's not very tough, is he? Uh, I don't know. Not complete weakling. Just I mean, absolutely. <laughs> sometimes you're born with it, and other times you work, and I think that the working part's admirable. <laughs> I don't know how much I should bash Batman on a podcast on the internet. I think most internet fans are actually Batman fans, so maybe I'm yeah, you might be losing yourself in the foot. Yeah, yeah losing right. credibility here. Gentlemen, thank you so much. As always, enjoyable to have uh, the two of you here, and uh, excellent choice of topic. I think this is a tremendous choice, and I think well beyond uh, just the just in air quotes here for those of you that can't see my podcast gestures. Um, this is a great pharmacology uh, podcast that has some meaning for um, what we do in psychiatry. So. A wonderful topic. Hopefully, uh, as you mentioned to me earlier, Dave, it puts this out into the mainstream a little more, and, and I think it does. On that note, team out. Team out. Batman. Out. <laughs> <laughs>